Well, I am excited to be up here this morning. Uh, I am honored that I was even asked to, to preach before you all this morning, and I'm honored that you're here. Uh, I want to especially thank those that are visiting with us this morning. If this is your first Sunday or, or second Sunday, uh, we are excited that you're here in our house with us. Uh, it's no small feat to get up in the morning on a Sunday and sit uh, with people that you may not know. Um, and we're especially thankful if you're here this morning and you don't consider yourself a follower of Christ. Um, it is even harder, I would say, to come into a place where you sit next to people you don't know um, who are worshiping a God they cannot see. Uh, so I am just super excited that you're here. I hope that you feel welcome in our house, and I hope that you see that we're not a perfect place, um, but I, I hope and I pray that you see that we are an authentic people um, and that we welcome you here. So uh, I'm excited to be here this morning. My name is Ryder Williams. I am Director of Student Ministries at Providence. That means uh, I'm the minister of those in 6th grade to 12th grade. And so if you have questions about our student ministry, come find me. I would love to talk to you about it. Um, I love my job. I love the people that I get to hang out with all the time. Um, So please come find me if you have questions about our student ministry. Um, But this morning, I want to start out by telling a little bit of my story, uh, my family's story. In 2015, uh, my wife and I decided to get certified for foster care. And so in April, we were certified. Uh, We heard one phone call or two uh, over the couple months there during the summer and spring, uh, but nothing came. We, we never got a child. Um, but then we get this phone call in the end of July or beginning of August from a friend of ours that we go to church with. And she said, I, I know of a young lady that wants to give up her baby for adoption. Would you be interested in doing that? And so Megan and I prayed about it. Um, it didn't take long for us to jump for joy and say, yes, of course. Um, and so we went through all the hurdles that we had to to get certified for, well, to get our lawyers and all that kind of stuff to make this adoption happen. Um, that was August. Fast forward, October 19th, we get a phone call at like 8 in the morning. The baby was supposed to be born in Culpeper. We get a phone call that the baby's coming, and the baby's in Baltimore. And so we're like, Baltimore? So I, I, I leave work, I rush home, we get in the car, and we head up to Baltimore. And we get there 10, 10 something. And when we arrived to the emergency room or the room where the baby was born, um, the, the mother's there, the friend's there, but the baby's nowhere to be found. And so we, of course, are very curious. Where's the baby? Where's the baby? We want to hold the baby. Where is the baby? And it was actually a bit of a busy scene when we arrived. Um, nurses kept coming in and doctors kept coming in. And uh, we find out that the birth mom is actually losing a large amount of blood. Um, and she's losing it fast. And so there's just all this hustle and bustle going on, and we don't know where the baby is. The the mother's not doing well. Um, And in the midst of of all the blood loss, the the mother's arm begins to swell, and she requests that she takes the wristband off, the one that says, I'm the mother, and the baby has one that matches, and says, that's her baby. So the nurse comes and removes it, and she, she offers it to my wife, Megan, who's sitting there, because she knew that we were the adopted family. Um, and Megan, in her wisdom, said, yes, of course, I'll take the bracelet. Um, fast forward a little bit more, around lunchtime, um, the mother's going through recovery, blood transfusion, all that. Um, we're sitting there waiting, wondering, and, and, and the social worker comes in. She points to the birth mom. She points to us. She says, you're not seeing the baby, and you're not seeing the baby. And we're like, what? What is going on? And she leaves. <laughs> and so... 
in the midst of, of all this, this chaos and wondering and asking questions, we're, we're, we're going around the hospital asking almost everybody we possibly can, like, where's our baby? Why can't we hold this baby? We have all the paperwork that we need. We're supposed to be able to do this. What is going on? And we finally find out through a couple different people that she's having trouble breathing. That's all we find out. Well, the worries and all this stuff is just piling and piling and piling. The stress level is pretty high. And that's all we get. And it was around midnight because we're waiting to see the baby. We get there at 10 in the morning. It's around midnight that the birth mom has finally moved into the room for recovery. And we go with her. And it was about that time that the nurse's shift switched. And so a new nurse comes in. And we say, can we see the baby? She looks at us and she's kind of like, do you have a wristband? And Megan's like, I do. (laughs) And the birth mom was, was not doing great, but she was recovering, and she was exhausted, laying in her bed, and she'd been asleep. And the birth mom just comes to all of a sudden, and the nurse goes, is it okay if they go see the baby? And she's like, and falls back asleep. And it was after midnight that we get to hold this sweet little button, um, and we find out uh, the next day that there's some medical complications. And... Also, there's some paperwork complications. We can't see, we can't adopt the baby until we get the paperwork adjusted from Virginia to Maryland and all this stuff. And so we're there overnight, um, but um, we had to go back and visit her for, it was 16 days she was in the hospital recovering. And so almost every other day, we're, we're heading up to Baltimore, getting somebody to take care of Logan, and we're making that trek. And it was just exhausting. It was, it was stressful. And every day we're there. We, we I remember one time showing up, and we wanted to hold her. We want other people to hold the baby, right? That's what you're supposed to do with a newborn. And, and we show up, and we hear this screaming from down the hallway. And we kind of go, oh, is that ours? And we get in the room, and there she is in the swing in the nursery, just limbs out, just doing this sort of thing, going as fast as possible, just beat red, screaming. We're like, give us that baby. <laughs> And so we get in there, and we would hold her like this, and she would sit there, and she would just be quiet, and she'd be so sweet. And then 16 days later, we see this little face, and she says, take me home, you, now. And we got to take her home, and um, it was very trying. I'm going to be honest with you. This was, it was a very hard thing um, going through all this. And that's the reason I'm telling this story is because that, that was just a glimpse of some of the costs of this adoption. And adoption's terribly costly. I, I remember coming to church on a Sunday morning, and Will Orr was preaching. He was here, and I was talking to him afterwards, and I was just explaining some of the things we had to go through. And he goes, isn't it funny how ex- costly adoption is? To which I was like, mm, it is funny. But I began to think about it more and more, and I realized, like, what God paid to adopt us as his children. I mean, what did it cost him? It cost him his life. And so that's why I tell this story this morning is because I want you all to, to kind of focus in on this idea of, like, God calling us his children and what it costs him. And if I were to have a main point for today, it would be this, is that God calls you child, not slave. And we, we can choose whether we embrace that title or not. We can, we can cast it off and say no. Or we can embrace and say, yeah, I do want that. I want to be your child. And I think that all of us have a tendency, even those that are Christian, to, to deny this identity as a child and, and want to like embrace and settle for like being an orphan, someone who's independent, or, or perhaps duty and slavery towards God. 
And we're, we're going into a very familiar passage. And, and so um, Luke 15, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them up or your devices, whatever it is, and, and follow with me. And I want to set the stage with some context for you guys. And it's in Luke chapter 15. I'm going to read the first two verses. Um, this is what it says. It says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were drawing near to Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. And these, these two sentences really just paint a picture of what we're walking into. And when we think about context, you think, like, okay, who's there? What are they doing? Uh, well, number one, uh, Jesus was there. Is this thing hot? You guys feeling that? Bring that down a little bit. Um, Jesus was there. He was doing ministry. Um, which, in essence, is teaching truth, the truth of his Father, the truth of God, and he's doing miracles. And there were some other people there, right? So there were these tax collectors and sinners, um, and there were Pharisees and scribes. And there's distinct differences. When, when Jesus is teaching and doing miracles, it attracted these two different crowds. We have those that are sinners, those that are wicked, and then we have the religious, those that are uh, seemingly squeaky clean on the outside, those that have devoted their lives to God, so they say. And they both have two very different reactions to Jesus. And the outcasts, the, the tax collections and sinners, they're obvious. They're obviously lost. It's pretty clear by their lifestyle. Um, but the other ones weren't as easy to see as being lost. And you see that the tax collectors and the sinners, they're there to draw near to Jesus. They want to lean in and they want to listen to what it is that he has to say. But the other crowd was very different. They actually just showed up to be condescending to him, to criticize him, to ridicule him, to argue with him, to hate him. And they were grumbling. It's a very different response than than the tax collectors and sinners and we have to ask, why are they grumbling? Well, it's, they're lost as well. You see, Jesus came to seek and save the lost, the sick, and those that were in need of saving. And these guys, they weren't in need of saving. They were not lost. In fact, they knew exactly how close they were to God. They thought, you know what? I have got this all going for me. I'm not lost at all. And why are you spending time with these sinners? We deserve all the attention. We're the ones that have actually been doing the good stuff, God. Get them out of the way. If you knew who they were, they're on the way to hell anyway. Just leave them. Spend time with us. We're the ones that deserve it. They believe they were owed all of God's blessings. They've been obedient. They should get all the blessings. And I think if we're honest, honest with ourselves in here, whether we're like the wicked or the religious, we, we want the good life, but not the good father. Whether we see that we're going to get that good life through creation, God's made things, where we go out and we enjoy the things that he has made, or we think that we get the good life because we are so embedded into our religious systems that God owes us that. He owes us a good life. God, I've been doing this all these years. You ought to bless me. We don't actually want God. We only want his good gifts. Rather than seeing God himself as that good life. Whether we, we don't see God, he is actually our joy, our hope. He's, he's our one that does give us true life. In him, he is the source. To which God responds to this action like this. God comes after us. 
as orphans. He doesn't leave us in that state. He comes after us as orphans, and he embraces us as his children. And he provides for our very greatest need. The thing that we're seeking, he provides for it, and that's a place in our Father's house. Which is why Jesus responds with these three parables. And we're going to look at the, the last one that he does in verses 11 through 32. So I'm going to read that. This is what it says. And he said, There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided the property between them. Now many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far-off country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. Now, this is the younger son. We're all very familiar with this parable, I'm sure. And if you're not, it's okay. It's, it's pretty easy to follow. But when it comes to the younger son, like, his lostness is actually pretty easy to tell. Like, it doesn't take a biblical scholar to figure out this guy's lost. I mean, I would say that those that are, are Christians would even say, like, reckless living, the dude's lost. Even those that are, are, are not Christian, there's like ingrained ethics in this world that people would look at him and say, that dude doesn't really know what he's doing. He's lost. He's, he's, he's wandering around, not wondering. He's wondering what is it that he's supposed to do. Even like some of the details, like he wishes that his father was dead. Anybody would say, that's not cool. I mean, in essence, he says, give me the inheritance. He says, Father, the best thing about you is on the other side of your life, and that's your money. And with that, he thinks that he can go and find exactly what it is that he needs. He proceeds to liquidate the property, right? Because most valuable things for people in that day was land and the things that sat on top of the land. And when he gathers all his stuff and goes to the far off land, it's hard to gather a bunch of cattle and do that. So he liquidates everything, lines his pockets, and he goes off. Because he truly believed that the answer to the good life is out there and money can buy it. It looked like reckless living. It's like this, this self-discovery, sort of like, I'm going out. If it feels good, I'm going to do it. I'm going to decide what's right and wrong. I'm not going to conform to the regularity of the world. I'm not going to you know, get the job I'm supposed to get, do the thing I'm supposed to do. I'm, I'm going to live off the proverbial grid and just find myself and just do what I want to do. Well, it doesn't last, um, and once you know it, circumstances got hard. A severe famine hit the land, and he began to be in need. If you have a pen, you should underline that in your Bible. He began to be in need because it's terribly significant to this parable. He began to be in need. He was alone. He was willing to eat pig food, and he woke up. And what did he wake up to? What was it that came to mind when he finally came to himself? He came to the conclusion that turning from this lifestyle to turning to his father was his best option. When he woke up, he thought of his father. And he decided it was time to come back to him. He says, my father's servants, they have, they have more than enough to eat. But I'm still not convinced that he knows his father. I'm not convinced that he is 
completely understanding who his father is, I think he's still a little bit lost. Because he has this idea that he's going to go from badness to goodness. He thinks the best option that he has is to become a hired servant or a slave. He doesn't even think of the, like, the, the chance of him becoming a son is just far off. Which is kind of reasonable, I would say. But yet he still misses his father. Like He doesn't quite get his father's heart. And even in the midst of him turning and coming back to his father, he's missing some key things. He thinks his sin is far too corrupt for the father to bring him back. He knows adoption is costly. There's this quote from J.I. Packer that says this, Adoption is a family idea, conceived in terms of love and viewing God as father. In adoption, God takes us into his family and fellowship and establishes us as his children and heirs, Closeness, affection, and generosity are at the heart of the relationship. To be right with God the judge is a great thing, but to be loved and cared for by God the Father is greater. See, the silver lining in in, in the younger son's lostness and coming back is, is this, is that in his need, his mind goes to his father. And as Christians, when we are in need, our first reaction should be one of faith. We should think of our father and his promises and what he has done. And the psalmists do it all the time in their distress. What do they do? They reflect on truth. When they're in distress, something that comes to mind is God's promises. And this is is what's going on in the the younger son's mind. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate, for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Why why do my kids cry out, mommy and daddy, when they're in need? It's because they believe in full faith that one of us can help them. They believe that we have the, the willingness, that we have the ability, that we have the desire to help them. And most of the time we do. Not every time, but most of the time we do. And this father that he is running after, let's look at him. I love the details of this father. This father has a track record of goodness and generosity. I don't know if you caught it in verse 17. How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? More than enough. Not just enough, but actually more than they would even need. He remembers this about his father. He's got this track record of his father's goodness and his generosity. And there's these other things, too, about the father where his compassion is scandalous, right? And so, like, his son is a long way off. And if you see somebody from a long way off, there's a good chance that it's daylight out, right? It's hard to see somebody a long way off in the dark. So this is in the middle of the day. He sees his son a long way off. That means others are seeing what's happening. The father gets up from where he is. He hikes up his robe. And he begins to run towards his son. And this is unheard of for a man of, uh, who, who's of honor and is a property owner. To, to expose his legs was a, was, a, was a thing of shame. You don't do that. And even today, if you see like an adult man who's not exercising, running towards another person, it actually draws your eyes over. You're like, what is going on over there? Like, it's a, it would not be much different even then. In fact, I think it was even more radical or scandalous. 
And this father, he has this unashamed love for his son. That he goes and he runs and he embraces him and he kisses him and all his filth and, and just disgustingness. You know he didn't smell good if he's hanging out with the pigs. He, but he's unashamed. He's like, that's my son. I'm going to go after him. The only thing I can think of is a similar like illustration would be like, imagine that you're in jail and that your father has to come down and bail you out. All the barriers that he has to go through to then get you out of jail, all the different people he has to talk to, all the different probably papers he has to sign, and, and that sort of thing, people would see him doing that. And there's a chance that you could, the father could feel ashamed to have to come down and bail you out of jail. It would be his money. You would have to say, That's, that one's mine. He's coming with me. But this father, no, no, no. No shame whatsoever. There's nothing holding him back. And I love that this love leads to a display of his power. What does he do? He says, go get the robe, get the rings, get the shoes. And you know what? Fatten calf. Go find it. We're going to kill it. We're throwing a party. And what do the servants do? What's their reaction? They go and they do it. It says, and they celebrated. He says, we're going to celebrate, and they celebrated. This father displays his power. He says it, and it's so. Nobody's arguing with this. There's no rebellion in this. They get up and they do it. Just because the father is the one that said it, it became true. He declares it, and it happens. And the fattened calf is no small gesture. In a day and age when meat was rare to be eaten at a party or to be eaten at all, like it's one thing to throw a party. That's another thing to throw a party with a goat. And another thing to throw a party with a fattened calf. He's generous. I mean, we're not eating steak every night for dinner. But even still, this was the choicest of animals to be eaten, to be, to be used for a celebration. This was the one that people wanted. This was probably going to be the party of the year. And I don't know if you caught it, but the son's speech is interrupted by his father's declaration of his sonship. He, he calls for this robe, and it covers his son's filth and signifies him as his son. I mean, what good would it have been if the father only forgave the younger son? He only forgave him and said, Come, be a hard servant. He would go from negative to zero. And from that point on, he would have to do and do and do and do to gain the father's favor. And how long do you think it would be for this younger son to mess it up? Or to really mess it up? What if God the Father only forgave us? And then from that point in time, we had to do and do and do to gain favor of the Lord. Oh, man, how long would it be before I would go here and here and then here again? No, favor comes from the robe. Favor shows that's my son. That's my daughter. Covers us. 
if we get in this thought process that there's something that we must do to gain favor from the Father, then we have misunderstood the gospel completely. We have misunderstood what that robe actually means. If you're wondering this morning, if you're a son or daughter of God, then look at the robe of Jesus Christ that's been placed on you. He says, that's my son, that's my daughter, look at your robe. No matter what filth it's covering, that's what declares your status as a child of God. So this leads us into our older brother. And you see, immorality is is rarely argued as something like, hey, you want to get closer to God? Try some immorality. Try some lying. Try some murder. Try some, some sexual promiscuity. These things, Jesus plus those things, will really bring you close to God. No one's arguing that at all. It's actually when people say, well, it's Jesus, and then these good things. And it, it happens so slightly. I barely even notice it in my own life. Where I begin to like just kind of insulate myself with these good behaviors. Where I say, you know what? Jesus is good, but Jesus, plus doing my morning devotionals every single morning, is what's really going to give me God's favor. Jesus, plus going to church every Sunday is when God's really going to just kind of tip the scales and all the favors going to come down to me. It's really hard to spot. And it's usually after the fact that you begin to realize it. This next son, he's lost. He's lost just as much as the younger son. In fact, I'd say it's even more dangerous and damaging. It's actually his goodness that has taken him away from the father. See, elder brothers believe that if we live a good moral life, then we will get the good life. I did it, God. You owe me. Because somewhere in Scripture it says God helps those who help themselves, right? No. No, God helps the helpless. How receptive are you to receiving God's help? How receptive are you to the robe? I think it's much much easier to give love than actually receive love. Whether I think I'm too, too unclean to receive the love or I think that I'm good enough. I'm actually good enough now, God. I don't need anything right now. I'm doing pretty good. I, no, no, that's not the way the righteousness works. See, righteousness given from God is like ground receiving the rain. The ground doesn't reach up and get that rain. No, it falls down and lands upon it, and that's what soaks it. This older brother, he is just eaten up with this, this anger and this despair, and just, he is joyless. And that's exactly what this, this like, I will do good, therefore I get from God, does to us. And some of the characteristics of this older son, he's far from the father physically, and that represents so much. He is, he is far off physically. He's way off in the field. Because if he truly loved the father and had the heart of the father, he'd be right there next with his dad, waiting for that younger son to come. He'd say, where is my brother? I long for him to return. He is far off both, both physically, he's far off relationally, he's far off emotionally. Nowhere near him. And how does he react to finding out what's going on? Well, he's anger. He's angry. He's full of anger and bitterness. I mean, what kind of reaction to a party is that? 
there's a party going on in my house, I don't think I'd be angry. Well, unless it's when Logan becomes a teenager and invites everybody over without saying anything. <laughs> Just kidding. He doesn't want the father at all. And, and anger and, and bitterness is a, is, a, is a common reaction to when you see someone getting something they don't deserve when you feel like you deserve it. See, when you feel like you deserve it and another person gets it, you're like, him? No. And then he begins to make his case to the father who steps down from the party and comes out back to, the, to his son throwing a hissy fit. He begins to say, I have obeyed every command that you've done. Don't you remember that? I have been such a good son to you. And you have never once even thrown me a party. And I will say this, that I've never noticed it before, and and maybe I need to read my Bible more, but I've never noticed the fact that he says, throws a party for me and my friends. Who does he want to party with? Not the family. No, his friends. He does not want the Father at all. You see, when you get in this, when we get into this self-righteous sort of like obedience-driven, I need to do, therefore I get, it, it's a slavish drudgery. There's no joy whatsoever. And it causes us to be very anxious, angry, insecure, because he begins to question the Father's love and denies the Father completely. If you loved me, then you would have thrown me a party. And that's exactly what happens to us when we get in this older brother mentality. It's like, God, I've been good. Then why would you bring this suffering into my life? Do you not realize I've been so good to you? So when something bad happens, we begin to get insecure and say, I guess he's not good. I guess he doesn't love me at all. I guess he's forgotten me. I guess I'm not actually his son. The brother is so fired up that he begins to question whether his father even loves him. He has no idea who his father is at all. He is so far off from his dad. And it's a slippery slope of anger that paves the way to hating his brother. He doesn't even call his father dad. He says, look. You ever started a conversation with that? Look. That person's going to... Anyway. He says, look, this son of yours denies the family, begins to hate his brother. And what is it that he hates about his brother? He goes, he goes, he has squandered everything. He lost all of our all of the property and on prostitutes, which I think he just throws that in there. I think it's probably a safe assumption, but he just throws it right in there. And it's funny because when we have this older brother mentality, it's hard for us to have compassion and pardon people's sin. Superiority comes with an elder brother mentality. We begin to think, well, I'm better than that person. At least I don't have that sin. See, when we have somebody that's struggled with the same sin as us, it's easy, it's easy to forgive them. They're like, oh, I do that too. But when it comes to a sin that you don't struggle with, well, you feel pretty good, pretty superior. And what is it that frustrates him? Well, the brother, he can't pardon his brother because it's weak in the family's place in society, disgrace their name, and diminish their wealth. It's pretty clear what the older brother considered the good life. Wealth, legacy, namesake among the community. 
And all these things just got tossed by the younger brother coming home and being embraced. It's pretty clear the older brother's hope is banking in these things. He doesn't care about being a son. That's not where his, his true joy and hope is. And in all of this, he can't even hear the loving invitation of the father to come into the party. The truth from his father that says, all that is mine is yours. Did you hear it? In the beginning, in verse 12, he divided the property among them. Older brother already had his share too. And the way it works is that the older brother gets two-thirds, younger brother gets one-third. Have you ever attempted to put God in debt to you? Using your obedience as means of leverage for God to bless you. Galatians says, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision or uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Only faith. It's neither our obedience or our disobedience that counts for anything. It's our faith and our resting in the robe and the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's what counts. It counts for everything. The story will leave you longing. It does. It leaves me longing. There, there's a cliffhanger at the end, but still, there's something else I long for. And this older brother, you see, he he's not a great older brother. And the audience would have thought of an older brother, uh, Cain, who said, "I am not my brother's keeper." And God said, "You are your brother's keeper." See, if this has been if this has been a good older brother, he'd have gone after his younger brother. He would have ran out there after him, or maybe even try to stop him before he made that absurd request to the father. And Jesus tells this story because he wants the audience to see that there is one that is closer than a brother. And it's him. It's Jesus Christ. And in Christ, he actually comes after us. He doesn't see us. He doesn't just leave us to go out and die amongst the, the, the wild and the, and the sinful living, but he comes after us. The older brother is not willing to pay the cost. Because you imagine the younger brother being invited back in, and like, where would that money come from now that he is back? One third was gone. Guess whose inheritance is going to be tapped into? The older brother. He wasn't willing to pay the cost of adoption. It's like, that is far too much. But there's this one named Jesus who understood the cost of adoption. And when he took on the cross, when he came down to earth and decided to take on the cross from us, he became naked so that we could be clothed. He lost dignity so that we could gain that. He took off his crown so that, and wore a crown of thorns so that we may get that crown. He said the cost is not too high. He had all the power in the world. Saw us enslaved by the very things we thought would free us. So he emptied himself of his glory and became a servant. He lay aside the infinities and immensities of his being, and at the cost of his life, paid the debt for our sins against the Father, purchasing us the only place our hearts can rest, in his Father's house. This is what we're banking our faith in. This is the one who we put our faith in, 
that we rest on. There's something I learned last summer from a teenager. They were up front and they were talking about resting and abiding in Christ. And he or she, I can't remember. Yep, babies do that to your brain. The, <laughs> this idea of abiding is, is actually like almost like sitting like in a chair. And we, when we begin to just abide in ourselves and, 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 and go on in our own strength, it's like standing next to a chair. How soon before your legs begin to give out and you begin to get tired? In Christ, you may rest in Him and His work. Take a seat. So the application is this. Be honest about your lostness. I will say that if you don't feel lost in this world, it's probably because you're at home. I don't know if there's any younger sons in here. I imagine there might be. Um, Know this. Turn to God. He embraces you and forgives you fully, no matter what. You still have time. Do it. It's worth it. Be robed in his righteousness. If there's any older brothers in here, and I know there's at least one, it's me. Put off your goodness. And if I know anything about the older brother, where is he going to be on a Sunday morning? Put off your goodness. It's not worth it. There's a goodness given from Christ that is way better than anything you could conjure up. Most of the time we hear about repenting from our badness, but maybe this morning it's time to repent from our goodness. That we've been trying to strong arm and twist the arm of God and say, give me the good life. Repent of the bad and the good. And then go tell your repentance story to someone. I know that a story of somebody who, tell, like, if you tell a story of how you were once perhaps like a Pharisee. See, I always thought the Pharisees were over there. They're far off, not me. I understand this whole, like, I'm a sinner thing. No, I have much to learn. If you go and you tell a story about how you thought that your goodness was going to get you near God and God was going to bless you, and you realize that Christ was way better and you had to give that up, imagine that refreshing story for somebody who isn't a believer from a Christian. So I don't know where you're at this morning, but I want to give everyone an opportunity and we're going, to take, we're going to take three to five minutes now. And I want to encourage you that if God is prompting you this morning to repent of your badness and your goodness, let's do it. We're going to spend time in prayer, and I want, I want to give you an opportunity to actually converse with your Father, who's calling you Son and desires to robe you. And then I'm going to close in prayer, and the worship team's going to come up. So let's pray. Lord of heaven and earth. Holy is your name. But yet, you are Father. You are, you are separated and different than us. But yet, you come after us and draw near to us. Lord, even now, sitting in silence, we understand the, the weight and, and the discomfort that we have being near you and being near with others that are near you. May you change that. 
May we know your, your compassion and your loving kindness. But Lord, I pray this morning that we would hear the gunfire, that we'd wake up to the reality that this world doesn't have anything to offer, but only true life is found in you and everything else comes after that. May we know you as good. Plant deep faith in us. And Lord, we seek your forgiveness for how many times we've we've lived both in the bad and the good, thinking that that good is what is actually of great value to us rather than embracing you. So Lord, we put that off this morning and we welcome the righteousness of Christ, which is far above and beyond anything that we could ever conjure up on our own. We thank you for your giving of that, that you didn't just forgive us, but that you clothed us in righteousness. We are your children. May we celebrate in that. In Jesus' name, amen.